Bottle Episode is a spirited podcast about spiritist libations. Those under their country's legal drinking age should turn off this podcast and go do their homework. everybody, and welcome to Bottle Episode, the professional bartender's guide for the cocktail enthusiast. I'm Lan. I'm a professional bartender. And I'm Elise, a cocktail enthusiast. Yes, you are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, today, folks, our guest is just an incredible juggernaut in the Austin cocktail scene. Uh, she owns probably my favorite cocktail bar in the city, uh, as well as doing all sorts of events, everything. I honestly am just in awe of like all the stuff that you do. Uh, but we have the owner of Drinkwell uh, here today to talk to us. It's Jessica Sanders, everybody. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So glad to have you. Uh, we talked briefly. You you just finished up an event uh, at Lamar here in, in Austin, right? I did. Yes. I just finished all the pack up. I hope I don't look too disheveled. I'm glad this is a podcast and not a video recording today. The, the, the perks of, yeah, being on a podcast. Yes, very Sorry. much so. Face built for radio, 100%. Uh, but, um, yeah, you you do all sorts of, like, like uh, you partner with a lot of brands. You're kind of, like, the go-to person in town, it seems like, for whenever a brand wants to, like, host an event. Your bartenders are the people that... that they trust. I really love working events. I think it's a time to, I don't know, you see guests in a totally different light when it is mm -hmm. at a special event. You can do things that wouldn't necessarily be appropriate or functional in a traditional bar setting. Usually they're more intimate events. Uh, the event mm -hmm. we did last night was for only 16 people. So that was really cool. Um, and then you have the other side of event work, which is events that are making cocktails for 500, 1,000 people. And mm -hmm. that is a very unique challenge because you're working in very high volume. Your strategy is very different. And uh, over the last probably... I don't know, three or four years, I've really delved into the event side of this business. And it's kind of fascinating, especially coming out of the pandemic when we're returning mm -hmm. to live events to see how that format is evolving mm -hmm. and what guests are looking for at events of different sizes. Okay. Do you okay. feel like it's different uh, post-pandemic? It's different in the sense, well, I or have- I always say post-pandemic and that's not what I mean. I, I mean like, po like post the- it hitting. We get it. Yes. Yeah, I, I, yeah. You all get it, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's like the ever the ever present dynamic or yeah. pandemic that we yeah. will live in in mm -hmm. perpetuity. I feel uh, it's different in the sense that I find that people, first of all, they're more excited to be out than ever before, mm -hmm. and so people are just so grateful to be amongst community and mm -hmm. out and experiencing life again that. Uh, they're just, I don't know, it's a more cheerful audience, I okay. think, than pre-pandemic. I think we went through event burnout prior to where mm -hmm. it was like event after event after event. And that's can be a grind for the guests too, where especially when you have that community that's really into food and drink and they want to go to all the festivals and do all the things. Mm -hmm. And then it starts to feel like the same thing over and over again. And so where we're at now, I think people are sort of rediscovering what it is like to eat and drink out among people. And sometimes that happens in a field with a thousand other people. And that's really exciting to people. 
So I don't know, the energy, the vibe right now is really good um, in terms of people's willingness to be out and try things, which is awesome. Uh, but I'm, I also have pretty dogmatic rules about how events should run. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of those is ju- just play the hits, especially on the cocktail side of things. Gotcha. Yeah. Just play the hits, right? This is not the time to wax poetic with some like original creation. I'm a big believer in classics at events, especially when you're partnering with brands because ideally you want people to leave that event, remember the brand and then have a way to order it at any bar that they walk into the next day. And if you're serving them a cocktail that was sort of only created for that event, it's a moment in time that they'll never, they can't walk into a bar the next day and say, Hey, can you make me this very specific cocktail that had this very specific Mm -hmm. cocktail syrup and you're setting that bar up for failure because they're never going to be able to recreate that. But Mm -hmm. if you serve them a really well curated menu of classics at an event, now they have a foundation to walk into a bar the next day or that following weekend and say, hey, I had this really awesome Paloma at this event. Can you make me that thing? Mm -hmm. And um so I don't know. I'm a very I'm a purist when it comes to event bartending. It's very different than uh, working in in a traditional bar environment. Yeah, and Drinkwell is like you do have a pretty a, a small classics list uh, that you keep rotating, and and uh, I think that's really cool. But your menu is is all uh, the main drive of your menu is all uh, house creations, all stuff that y'all have come up with there. Yes, we certainly punch a little bit above our weight. Uh, in terms of what I think the average guest expects from a neighborhood cocktail bar. Mm-hmm. And that has been the model of Drinkwell from day one. Yeah, it's certainly, I mean, I, I, I don't want to say that I was ever surprised because, you know, I knew who was running the place. I knew that like, I, I knew that things were going to be good. Uh, but I am always, there's always something surprising on the menu uh, using an interesting ingredient in a way that I've never seen before. Uh, things like that. And I love also that y'all give credit to whoever made it just with the little initials sure. at the end. I like that. I think that's fun. Yeah, I think um, I always revel in the experience of the guest coming in to drink well. And it's always a little bit nicer than they expect. And mm-hmm. and I mean that in every detail, just mm-hmm. the, the drinks are a little bit more creative than I think what the average person is anticipating. The glassware, we're really intentional about the glassware that we choose. Mm-hmm. It's not going to feel like the kind of glassware that you see at every single neighborhood bar. So there's so many little details and textural elements that it just feels a little bit nicer than it probably should be. And that's what makes it a really, that's I, I would like to think that's what makes me a really good business owner and also a really bad business owner because <laughs> sometimes I make decisions that are not always as practical, but they're really about that nuance to the drink mm-hmm. well experience that I hope surprises people and keeps people coming back. It doesn't hurt that it's like 10 minutes away from where we live and everything else is 15, 20, but mm-hmm. it's, it's certainly the place that I go back to the most. Yeah. We always are, are like, that's like always on our short list. If we like don't know we're doing, we like, we could go to, <laughs> go to drink well, uh, and I always like when that plan works out. That's, so. that's extremely kind. Thank you. It's also kind of a trip because when Drinkwell first opened, nothing was in this neighborhood. And mm. I remember sitting down with a few people and asking them, OK, what's going to be our biggest barrier to success? And they would say, well, your location. And because at that point, 
it was considered pretty far north Austin. Mm-hmm. And most of everything there was to do was on East 6th Street or in downtown Austin. And so we were kind of tucked away, you know, 10, 15 minutes north of true downtown Austin. And it felt like forever to get there. And mm-hmm. now we've sort of been enveloped and we are part of central Austin. And so mm-hmm. it, it's weird when people say, oh, I love coming to Drinkles. It's so close to where I live because it used to be a little bit of an effort to get people to venture all the way north yeah. to yeah. North so Loop or Hyde Park north. to drink so far north. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, uh, and I love the North Loop neighborhood. If there if there is one place that I would really love to live in Austin, it would be right around there. Mm-hmm. It still feels like one of the last vestiges of old Austin mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. what is increasingly a very cosmopolitan city. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, so good. So many good little vintage stores and fun things. Yeah, we, we made the rounds a few days ago. Just uh, we went to like some of the bigger vintage stores down on Guadalupe. But then we we went to North Loop and just hit like room service, uh, Ermine Vintage right across mm-hmm. the street and Blue Velvet and spent way too much money. Yep. Uh, <laughs> can't can't get out of there without without <laughs> spending more than you intend to so uh but speaking of your classics menu and your your staunchness on using classics for events we talk about classic cocktails on this podcast and uh you said you had two different ones that you wanted to talk about uh and i said which one would you prefer to be drinking at 2 30 in the afternoon recording a <laughs> podcast and you were like pisco sours that's right it made the decision very easy <laughs> very very easy yeah pisco sour let's do it yeah uh, so talk to me about why you chose this, what what this drink kind of means to you. And uh, yeah, the Pisco Sour is a really fascinating cocktail to me. I always refer to it as the sizzling fajita of the classic cocktail landscape because it is one of those cocktails where as soon as one guest sees one going out on a tray. What's that? All of a the sudden they want it. And now okay. you end up making <laughs> 30 in a night. Mm -hmm. And there are a few drinks like that, that over the years, we've just decided that given the popularity of that cocktail format, and we know that as soon as someone sees one, they're going to, everyone in the room is going to want one. Okay, well, let's just either put it on the menu or put some riff of it on the menu Mm -hmm. and make our lives a little bit easier because then we're not you know, fumbling for bottles or trying to pull it together on the fly when now all of a sudden 50 people want one. Mm -hmm. The Pisco Sour definitely fits that mix. And I also like it because it's one of the few drinks by which you can excite people about Pisco. I think that's still considered a fairly obscure spirit as far as like the layman cocktail enthusiast. Mm -hmm. And there are not it's also not a particularly versatile spirit, right? There's only yeah. like, it's kind of hard to work with in some ways, but this is a banger of a drink that is delicious mm-hmm. every single time with very mm-hmm. few ingredients. Yeah, it's just Pisco. Uh, so for the yeah. listeners at home, uh, the Pisco sour that we are drinking today is two ounces of Pisco, three quarters of an ounce of lime juice, three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup and uh, an egg white. Dry shake it without ice first and then shake it with ice uh, and then you can toss some bitters over the top and make a nice little design. You're a dry shake. I'm a dry shake. You're a first. dry shake fan. Yeah. yeah. Do you not dry shake? I don't dry shake huh. personally. So I am a big fan of the whip shake when it comes okay. to egg white mm-hmm. drinks. And for those listening, essentially what that means is that you're shaking a cocktail with just a small amount of pebble ice or crushed ice. 
And I think of it as if you think about the little bead that's in a can of spray paint Mm -hmm. and you Mm -hmm. shake that up and it kind of aerates it, it's the same idea. But it takes some trial and error to really get your technique right because if you use too little crushed ice, then the drink, while it may be aerated, it won't be cold enough. Mm -hmm. And if Mm -hmm. you use too much crushed ice, then you end up having to shake it for a really long time. The drink maybe gets a little bit over diluted. But I do like what it does to the drink texturally and it saves me the step of having to dry shake and then shake with ice and it just makes the drink go out a little bit faster but Mm -hmm. it does it takes a little time to get your i don't know get your wrist motion just right to get the right amount of ice in it for sure I'll have to te- I'll have to test that out. I've never tested out doing a whip shake with an ice yeah, or I just, with an egg white drink. A small amount of crushed ice and then I shake it until I can't hear the ice anymore. Yeah. And that's okay. hmm. audibly that's how I know that's, the drink should be done and my tin is cold and yeah. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. That's uh again, I I I have not I don't think I've ever heard of doing a whip shake for an egg white drink other than maybe the Ramos Gen Fizz. Mm-hmm. Uh so I will have to test that out. Um but yeah, Pisco is a weird one. I feel like Pisco is a Pisco sour is like a household name. Everybody yes. knows what a Pisco sour is, but very few people and the Venn diagram overlaps a lot of the people who do know what a Pisco sour is and don't know what Pisco is. Oh, 100 percent. You know, some I think a lot of people think that Pisco is just a, you know, a type of whiskey or something like, yes. you know, because whiskey sours are so popular as well. So people are like, oh, well, like, like, what's the difference between a Pisco sour and a whiskey sour? And I was like, Pisco. you just said it. Yes. You just said it, yeah. what the difference Which, is. Do you want to, like, describe Pisco? Because I, I think I only he- heard about what it was like a year ago, honestly. Like, I think I did not know until recently the yeah. word Pisco. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Pisco is a clear grape based spirit. It is essentially a grape brandy, an NH grape brandy, uh, predominantly from Peru, although mm. there is a centuries-long battle over who invented Pisco, okay, either the country of this. Peru or the country of Chile. <laughs> uh-huh. I think recently the, the EU kind of declared patrimony towards Peru, and much to the revelry of the Peruvian people. Okay. Um, but, and the chagrin of the Chilean people. Yeah, exactly right. But yeah, and it, it, it is essentially a clear, unaged, grape-based brandy from South America. And you have to be careful, though, when you talk to guests about it, because something about saying the word brandy, people conjure up cognac in their brain, and then they don't, they're less, he- they're more hesitant to try it because they think, oh, well, I don't like cognac. I mean, no, this tastes nothing like cognac yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, and so, but yeah, I, I tend to find that if you say, well, you know, it, it's great based and focus on what it tastes like and then what it, how it performs in a cocktail, you're much more likely to excite people about it as a spirit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, and I think speaking of speaking briefly on the origins of, of Pisco. Like I, I don't fully understand the, the battle between Peruvian and Chilean Pisco one, they, they, there are different regulations for both of them. Pisco from Peru has to be distilled a certain way and Pisco in Chile can be distilled a different way. Pisco in Chile can be aged. Whereas Pisco in, uh, in Peru cannot be, uh, also Pisco was probably invented before either Peru or Chile were countries. A hundred percent. And so like they were doing on a, they were doing the grape distillates that they're doing now under like colonial Spain. Uh, so it's been, it's been a thing like for 
since the 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 beverage predates uh the countries so the the de demarcation of like who invented it i always thought was a little a little silly but i agree <laughs> I, I agree, I but I'm not from either of those countries. So this is, you know, who are we to say? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I, I feel like I I don't and I don't know the dynamic of this Pisco beef, but I do feel like it's always fun to have a rival. So like maybe Pisco, like the popularity of Pisco benefits from this fun little back and forth between who, Peru and who Chile invented it. Just... It seems like a fun little I don't know. Again, it like... might be serious, but it sounds fun. I've I've seen things get heated. About, I've seen people get heated about the the origins of pisco. Uh, I, either like a, a Peruvian will come into my, you know, more more likely it's a Chilean comes into the bar and it's like you don't have any Chilean pisco. Uh, but where I work right now it does have both, and so mm -hmm. I got I saw a guy get really excited <laughs> over like our aged uh, Mistral añejo. Okay. Uh, he just got really really excited and he was like, I'm gonna have that with Coke. That's always a really fun moment when someone comes into the bar and they see something from their country of origin that mm -hmm. previously they were only able to access in that place mm -hmm. or in a larger city. I think if you go to New York or San Francisco with bars that have really robust spirits programs and mm -hmm. they have those more esoteric things, I always get really excited when a guest comes in and they find something that they thought wasn't accessible to them in yeah. a small bar or in a small market. And I, I feel like those moments are also just part of it's one of the big reasons of why I do this, you know, seeing somebody's eyes light up because you can provide them with the thing that they are like most hoping for. Or the thing they didn't know they wanted until they saw it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then it completely flips their night. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that, that was really cool. And yeah, Pisco, you can make Pisco, you can make a Pisco sour with either. There are also other South American unaged brandies. There's Singani. There's, yes. I don't remember any of the other ones. Yeah, Singani is really cool. That's, yeah, Singani that's is really delicious. Bad. Very delicious. It's mm -hmm. distilled at a very high altitude. It just has a very different profile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I love Pisco and I love I love the Pisco Sour. I think it's a, a very simple drink that requires a little bit of uh, technique nuance from the bartender. And I don't know, egg white drinks in general, I think are just delightful. And I'm really mm -hmm. happy to see that most of, at least our guests are so much less averse to it you know when Drinkwell first opened and as soon as someone saw an egg they were like what are you doing to my cocktail and uh -huh. we were still in that era of people being really weirded out by eggs and drinks mm. and then now I feel like people don't bat an eye about yeah, it at all don't. and in fact they they are looking for the cocktail on the menu that has an egg white and they there's just by nature of what it is, they're excited about it. Yeah, <laughs> folks, folks will at the Roosevelt Room. Folks will just go down the line and be like, "Have I had? Have I had all your egg white drinks yet? Because exactly. I would like to have all of them, please." Yes. Um, and and I do quite enjoy egg white. I do have a question for you. This is this is maybe a little bit of a too industry question. Do you mm -hmm. crack your egg whites to order, or do you prep them? We prep them just because okay. we go through so many egg white cocktails. Drinkwell's a really mm -hmm. small bar. Our wells are really small, and we're very mindful of getting guests' drinks fairly quickly. And so we do prep at the start of service. Also, I find like when you prep them in advance, or at least we, you know, when we do sort of our mid shift like 
resets of things, Mm -hmm. having them somewhat fresh, kept chilled, but you can also integrate, you kind of pre-emulsify them. I think that also lends itself to that whip shake technique Mm -hmm. that I mentioned to you because they're already broken up and they're going to go into the drink a little bit quicker. We pre-prep ours as well at Roosevelt Room and we like, and I think we had a little bit of sugar and vodka to them to mm. stabilize them. Yeah. Uh, and do, we do do a little bit of like pre-emulsifications. It also helps just with consistency because if you're trying to, cr- eggs are an agricultural product and there's going to be some difference to every single egg that you crack. And where I find most people go sideways with egg white drinks at home is they use the entire egg white from their egg in their I was cocktail. just going to ask, what is the measurement when it says like, when you include egg white in a drink, like how much should you put in? In my opinion, no more than a half an ounce of egg white. But okay. most people don't think in those terms. Most people at home are not measuring their egg whites. Mm. They're just cracking a whole egg white in their cocktail. And American eggs are enormous, yeah. right? And we're used to buy, I mean, come on, we buy our eggs in a size called jumbo, right? <laughs> so that can yield over an ounce and a half of egg white. And when you put too much egg white in a cocktail, it's not so much that it becomes overly eggy in flavor, but it does dry the drink out a lot. And mm-hmm. it really throws the texture of the cocktail yeah. off quite a bit. So the other benefit of pre- preparing your egg whites in advance is now you can put them in some vessel that allows you to measure them out and get a consistent amount Mm -hmm. for every single cocktail rather than hoping that the egg you crack is right which will sounds like it most likely won't be correct well and also from a sanitary perspective you're cracking eggs you've got egg all over your hands and Mm -hmm. it's just kind of yeah yeah not pleasant Mm -hmm. yeah uh do you do anything with the egg yolks we save them we are fortunate we have a full kitchen at Drinkwell, Uh and so often the kitchen will repurpose them for desserts and things we we have desserts um or you in in the winter months in particular we will kind of isolate them and use them for flips which are cocktails that are made with egg yolk and so in those months when we're going through a lot of egg white drinks it kind of makes sense to have some sort of a custardy mm -hmm. egg yolk flip in the mix yeah and flips are delicious. They are. Oh, I love a sherry flip. Mm-hmm. Your boss is a big fan of the sherry flip. My boss is a big fan <laughs> of the sherry flip. And the I will say the sherry flip that we had, we don't have it on the menu anymore, but we still have the specs for it. And people do still ask for it. And it is primo. There is a very vocal minority of people that are really into dessert cocktails yeah. any time of the year. Which is odd because you, I think bartenders, we lament the guest who's always concerned about a drink being too sweet. Mm -hmm. But especially, I think, coming out of the pandemic, we sell a lot more sweet drinks than we did before. Yeah. I I always push up against, uh, I always push up against like not too sweet as as a modifier because what I've found is that sweet means very different things to me than it means to you, than it means to you. And and so on and so on. I think that a daiquiri is sweet, but when I throw a daiquiri to some, like if I give somebody a daiquiri who said, "Don't make me a sweet drink," they're typically like, "Awesome, happy, great, yes. everything's good." But but I think it's a sweet drink, and so I've had to like learn how to to kind of mm-hmm. taper my my feelings on on what drinks are because I love a daiquiri, but I do consider it a sweeter drink for me. Sure. Um, and. You know, people don't consider a Manhattan a sweet drink, but I think it's a fairly sweet drink. I agree. Um, It's kind of a two pronged conversation because I think 
I always tell guests, are you concerned about the drink tasting sweet or are you concerned about its sugar content? Because those are two different conversations. And I find what people are most concerned about is the sugar content of their cocktail Mm -hmm. because they have this conception that more sugar. Well, first of all, I think rightfully so they're concerned from a health perspective, but secondarily, they're also concerned that it's going to make them more hungover. And mm-hmm. I always tell people, okay, if you have four of anything, you're probably going to wake up feeling a little sluggish tomorrow, regardless of what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I always try to hone in on, all right, what is your concern? Is it that you don't like the taste of something sweet? Or is it that you're concerned about how much sugar is in this drink? Because mm-hmm. there are a lot of drinks that you're right are very sweet in terms of how they taste, mm-hmm. but they don't have a lot of residual sugar in them. So trying to get to the root of that question in an efficient way during service. Mm -hmm. And a lot of guests, to your point, they'll tell me, I don't want anything sweet, but then they'll suck down four painkillers, which is a pretty sweet tropical cocktail with coconut cream, right? And it's like, look, delicious is delicious, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, and and so like too sweet is, is always like a thing that I don't, I don't know how to find that for you. Uh, but I typically, you know, that that's where being a hospitalitarian and like actually asking follow up questions and not being like, all right, well, then you just get a shot of mezcal or something. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, I, you get a dry yeah. martini. But whereas like, I mean, I, I feel like it's like, OK, well, like, what do you consider sweet? You know, do you like what do you typically enjoy drinking? Do you want something that's more like booze forward and dry or do you want something that's you know, refreshing. Do you want something that's more tart? Yeah. And, and which, finding like, those questions, I think, is yeah, good. Which I feel like the refreshing it doesn't necessarily mean sweet, but like it definitely is maybe like in my mind sweeter. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Again, it's like different for everybody. And you can get into the conversation of like, I, I, f- I find it unproductive to have the conversation of, well, in order for your cocktail to be balanced, there needs to be some sugar in there probably. Yes. Uh, or something to replace the sugar if you're going for a specific vibe. Yeah. I I feel like I don't know. If so I, I feel like <laughs> as someone like ordering in a bar, if like don't be afraid of sweetness. Yeah. Is should be. I mean I don't know. Like don't be like, I don't want it to be sweet because like and it can make menu writing a little tricky. I'm I really feel strongly about not using the word syrup on a printed menu. I agree. Because mm. I think people see the word syrup and there a lot of times people will say, Can you leave the syrup out of the drink? You're like, no. And it's well, I can, but it's gonna taste awful. Bad, right. Yeah. And so we try to find clever ways of writing the menu. And the fewer ingredients in the cocktail, the more challenging that becomes, right? How do you write the recipe for a daiquiri without including the word sugar in some form or fashion? And if mm-hmm. you just write rum and lime, that's a, it's, yeah. it, they're like, well, well, that doesn't sound very interesting. And people that know just enough about drinks are like, well, that's not a daiquiri. And it's like, no, no, we really do put something yeah. in there. So you're like, oh, you know, and get creative with the verbiage, cane sugar or mm-hmm. yeah. something like that to make it convey the sense that there is a sweetener in the drink without turning people off by the yeah. word syrup. I, Pisco yeah. sour is a little easier because it's Pisco, citrus, egg white, Angostura, and you can kind of leave the nuance of the simple syrup component mm-hmm. out of it. Mm-hmm. And most people will focus on the other elements of the drink. Yeah. Because yeah. like, do you think it's like a almost like artificial sweetness that people are afraid of, like a saccharine like Yeah, that could, I feel that's like a fair point. Even with desserts, like I feel like a lot of times like People, a lot of people don't like frosting because I feel like it's just like way oversaturated sweetness. Yes. And I don't know if that's like what people are like. I don't want 
my drink to be frosting. Well, and <laughs> like, I think if, especially if someone is new to drinking in true cocktail bars, they are probably concerned that what you're working with is some sweet and sour tight mm-hmm. mix or some artificial sweetener or uh, high fructose corn syrup yeah. based flavored mm-hmm. thing. And, and so that's the, like not what you're using ever. No, exactly right. So it, it can get a little challenging. It's kind of a fun wordsmith activity of mm-hmm. how to, and to your point, how do you quickly have that conversation and keep service moving and not turn it into a game of a <laughs> thousand questions yeah, and also discuss flavor profiles. Yes. Down. Here's this chart. Yes. So yeah. that's another reason why our cocktail menus are historically written in a little bit more of a conversational style in terms of this is what this drink tastes like, not here is the list of ingredients in this drink. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've been having a lot, I feel like between uh, when we went to bar five day, we had to critique a menu and it was like heinous, this heinous menu. And it was supposed <laughs> to be, we were supposed to just like basically write an essay on why this menu was bad and what we would do to fix it. Uh, but I've also been talking to other people about menu writing and and how, like what my feelings on it are. And I think that, uh, I think that th- that's a very interesting conversation to have the, the like, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of just being like, this is the drink. Here's what's in it. Right. I like, you know, I don't think that, that people need, people don't care. And if they do, they will ask. And if they, Mm. if they do, they'll ask. But I, I, I feel like people get bored of reading like an essay about one cocktail when it's like, you know, strawberry, basil infused, uh, tequila, uh, like made with a spinzol and right. then like go, going super granular into how everything is made when it's like strawberry basil tequila like you could just say that and then if somebody wants to know how you do it you can tell them all the all the all the cool things you did to make the cocktail but i think that the average mm-hmm. person walking into the bar just wants to know what it's taste what it tastes like and another thing that i really like about the drinkwell menu and and i've seen seen this more at at out and about is showing people how it's served. I like when you have like a little image or maybe a little blurb about what glass it's going to come in. Is it stirred? Is it shaken? Uh, that I think gives people way more information than like saying this, the honey butter infused simple syrup toasted with pecans or whatever. Yeah, it yes. adds so much context to be able to yeah, just know what glass yeah. it's going to be in. People, I find, love to buy things. They hate to be sold something, mm-hmm. right? No one comes home and says, oh, I was sold a new car today. Mm-hmm. They say, oh, I bought a new car today. And I think the same uh, conversation can happen around cocktail menus where the more that you can do as a bartender to trace it back to something that they're already familiar with and they can mm-hmm. feel empowered to proactively order it without you having to sell them on it, the better experience they're going to have. And so understanding like what are the eight or 10 drinks that people already know, even if they've never been in a cocktail bar before, almost everyone knows what a margarita is. Mm-hmm. And so if I can write on a menu, a margarita style cocktail with strawberry and basil, I don't have to put any other ingredients on that page because they know they're going to get something that is sort of in the style of a margarita that tastes like strawberries and basil and they're mm-hmm. all in. And that drink might have six or seven different ingredients and aperitifs and house-made cordials mm-hmm. and all kinds yeah. of things. Mm-hmm. But what they see is margarita, strawberry, basil, I'm in. 
Mm -hmm. And that I think really helps guests to feel like they're owning their own experience rather than needing to be guided through an experience by a stranger. Yeah. And I, and some might say that that's like dumbing it down or, or something, but I honestly disagree. I feel like it's, it, I, I prefer for things to be simplified for me and I can read Mm -hmm. a list of ingredients and usually know about what I'm going to get. I don't one one, I don't want to have to think too hard. I'm not there to like, I don't know, dissect and be closed on something. And then also when you have to Google stuff at a cocktail. (laughs) Yes. Well, one of my favorite quotes, John Santer, who owns a bar called Prizefighter in uh, Northern California, I sat through one of his classes once and he said a great cocktail menu is an exercise in empathy, not in creativity. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand that your guests may come in and they might not know anything about cocktails. Another reason why I gravitate towards Pisco as a spirit is it was in the very first cocktail that I fell in love with, which was at Death & Co. in 2006, 2007. They had a drink on their menu called The Little Bird and it was essentially a Pisco punch with strawberry and pineapple infused Pisco and St. Germain. Mm -hmm. and I it was the first cocktail bar I had ever been in of that style and I remember looking at that menu and I almost left because I did not know what anything on the page was you know I was coming off of like my Coors Light drinking era Mm -hmm. and maybe a margarita or a cosmopolitan or something but I really didn't know anything about spirits and but I was able to look on that page and the thing that I honed in on was okay I know what strawberries are and I know what pineapple tastes like I'll give it a go. How bad could it be? Mm. And it was something that I was already familiar with. And I was too embarrassed to ask the bartender, what is Pisco? What is St. Germain? What it, What is this drink going to taste like? But mm-hmm. I knew what those two flavors were. Mm-hmm. And it felt like a dice roll that was worth it. And so I have an affinity towards Pisco in part because mm-hmm. that what otherwise have been a very adventurous drink choice for someone like me. Mm -hmm. But I also recognize looking back on it, that cocktail was perfectly designed for a 24 year old that was going into her first cocktail bar Mm -hmm. and wouldn't know what anything else on the page was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which honestly, I feel like that's really good advice. If you don't know anything, just like find something that you, you know, and then, and you like, and then go with that. But also don't be afraid to ask your bartender. I feel like, yeah. uh, you know, we were we were talking right before we started recording about like there are these articles of like the question, <laughs> the dumb questions to ask your bartender. And they're always written by these asshole bartenders who are like, don't ask me any questions. They're all dumb. And I think that we're moving. I think that we have if we haven't fully moved away from it, we're very largely moving away from the the like stoic i'm too cool for you bartender anti-guest bartender yeah. yes uh i because i hate that i don't want to be treated that way i don't want to treat other people that way and i think that the majority of the cocktail bars any cocktail bar worth its salt that you go into you should be able to ask the bartender what's this tell me about this and they should they should be more than happy to explain it to you uh and yeah. And if you're interested in what they're doing and then they're like, you're dumb, that then they're leave. a jerk. Yeah. Go to <laughs> they're dumb. Bar. You're dumb. Yeah. Exactly. Your mom is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's just not a good, yeah, not a good vibe. It's not a good look. No. Yeah. I mean, the the era of the kindly bartender is back and has been, I think, for, for a while now. I agree. And, uh, and so ask your bartenders the questions. I think that that's that's part of what this podcast about is about mm-hmm. is 
you know, if you are too afraid to ask a bartender uh, in person, then please ask us because we really, really need questions. We really need questions, please. Uh, <laughs> the more specific, the better. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I think that it's about time for us to get another Pisco Sour and then we'll get into some some listener questions and some other fun stuff. Yeah. But we will see y'all in just a little bit. I always hit that a little too late. Can scoot it up. And welcome back. So we generally like to ask everyone who comes on, since this is like kind of TV inspired, are there any um, things that you've seen in TV about bartending, about bars, about entertaining that drive you crazy whenever you see them? Oh, the size of... <laughs> it's an interesting question. Uh, the size of pores. Okay, okay, so particularly when it comes to neat pores. So I've just recently gotten into the show Billions, okay. uh, which is absolutely fantastic. I'm completely enthralled. It's trash TV. It's like succession, but trashier in a way. Okay. Awesome. But... Very often in these shows, when they're at bars or they're having like business meetings that involve alcohol, I look at these neat pours and there's like six ounces of whiskey in these glasses. It's like if you drink that, you're not doing any business. Well, I understand probably for television, they need the visual effect Mm -hmm. of their seeming like there's liquor in this thing. Mm -hmm. But I think it sets up a very false expectation with the guest of how much booze they're going to get in things mm-hmm. and we're as bartenders we're already challenged with the type of glassware that most people have access to at home and i think you and maddie Kay talked about this mm-hmm. in your martini episode where the type of glassware that most people have at home is substantially larger the things that you buy at target or at bed bath and beyond or what have you they're not more traditional cocktail glasses and so mm-hmm. yeah it always irks me in movies or in tv whenever i see these cocktails that are enormous or these pours of things that are absolute like three three volumes of what we mm-hmm. would get in a bar and that's what leads to the guest that comes in and says okay where's the rest of my drink you yeah. Know? yeah yeah and you're like yeah. yeah you got the rest of it underneath that bar top there right <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, you're now you're in a position where you have to defend the poor, and, yeah, and you're like, well, we want you to walk out of this bar. Yes, a hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, so that always intrigues and and slightly enrages me mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah, I don't actually have one this week. Um, however, uh, well, I sort of do. Uh, one of my coworkers, Armando, showed me a heinous clip from the TV show Smallville. Uh, and I just texted him to find out if he could send it to me because I really want to I want to post that on TikTok. Okay. Uh, but there's a there's a scene where they like, go into a party thing. There's a guy just like holding a holding a shaker, but he's also pouring like gross like mixto tequila into some tall shot glasses oh. and he's just over pouring it onto the bar top. It's just splashing <laughs> everywhere. Yes. He's pouring it from glass to glass to glass, but they're not next to each other. And he's just like glug, glug, glugging it all over the bar top. Half of the bottle is all uh-huh. over the counter. Yeah. And I was just like, he showed that to me and I, I knew that we had to do something. And it was sort supposed to be serious. Yeah. And they was just, they were just doing that bad. Yeah. It, it was just the opening scene for the show. Okay. Wow. Like, hey, we're here to party. Yikes. That is, that Yikes. Is uh, so I, 
I as soon as I get him to show that to me or tell me what episode it is, so I don't have to go searching. <laughs> I'll I think we should post it on TikTok. We're also uh, full disclosure, we are extremely behind on our, on our TikToks. Uh, turns out when you work 50 hours or more a week at a bar, don't have a whole lot of time to make TikToks, but we will catch up. Yeah, somehow and we'll TikToks try to stay on top of it. are not the priority somehow. You're better than me. I um, neither tick nor talk, so <laughs> you are already ahead of the game as far as well, I'm concerned. We, so we just we got between, between bar five day when I was gone for a week and then... Like we had episodes banked, but I had to edit them. And between all of that and and taking on more responsibility at the bar, I just have not had time to make any TikToks. Um, I feel like bar five day, you need a week of recovery on top of the week of the thing. Mm -hmm. It's like when you need a vacation after your vacation to recover. Although nothing about bar five day feels like a vacation other than you're in New York and it's cool. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, we were also an intense week. Yeah. Oh, that's right. This you guys doing at the Culinary Institute, right? Yeah, yeah. For those of you who are not uh, not aware of what Bar Five Day is, there's a there's a program called the Beverage Alcohol Resource or Bar, and uh, it's run by six luminaries of the cocktail world, uh, from Dale DeGroff, who is a very famous bartender, uh, David Wondrich, Steve Olson. Doug Frost, Andy Seymour, and now they brought on like so many more partners as well. Uh, but they they do things at every level. They have they have bar education programs at basically every level. They've got bar starts, bar smarts, bar smarts advanced, uh, and bar five day. Only the last two are in person, and the other two are are online. And they, I think it's like fifty bucks for the for the lower level. It's pretty courses. reasonable, yeah. Uh, so if you're looking to like. I mean, if you're a bartender and you haven't taken Bar Smarts, you should absolutely uh, either ask your bar to pay for it because a lot of places will. Um, I've never had to pay for it. I've been fortunate enough to work at bars that think that that's a valuable thing. Um, but also, I think it's worth the money. And I think that if you're in a place where you can can shell out that money, then it's a good it's a good thing to do. You'll learn a lot about spirits. You'll learn a lot about bartending. You'll learn about a lot about the history of cocktails. And if you're an enthusiast who really wants to know their stuff, uh, hitting hitting bar starts or bar smarts is, I think, a really good way to really up your game. Yeah. Well, not only is it a pretty rigorous and comprehensive program, the reality is is there's not a lot of alternatives to it. Yeah. We don't in the spirits or in the co- especially on the cocktail side of things. There is not a lot of education that is formalized the mm-hmm. way there is, for example, in wine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it it is kind of the the best of what's available to us. And that's not a pejorative. It's a fa- fantastic program. Mm-hmm. But it also is kind of the only the only game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the best of what's available to us. But even if there were more available to us, it would still be some of the best yeah. that was available to us. Um, and with that, I think that we should also get into the caveat of if you are looking to be a bartender, do not, I repeat, do not go to bartender school. True. It is a scam. <laughs> they will not teach you good things. Just get a job at a bar. It's I, not that hard. I also am kind of surprised that that hasn't changed. You would think hmm. that as cocktail proliferation has become what it is and cocktail bars are there's now a, a cocktail bar in almost every American city mm-hmm. and there is an increasing amount of desire for bartenders that want to focus on craft cocktails and classic cocktails you would think that a program would have emerged by now 
that is focused on that aspect of our business Mm -hmm. and that there's bartending schools that I think there are a lot of bartending schools that think that they're focusing on craft cocktail making, but it just hasn't improved. It really hasn't evolved very much. Hmm. It's truly like how to, it's basically like how to club bartend in the nineties. Yes. That's, that's what you learn at bartending school in 2022. Yes. And that's why every single bar has its own unique training program because they want to teach you how to work in their program. And there's really nothing. And to be honest, I think sometimes I wonder with newer bartenders, if any training program is really worth it prior to, because it's really just predicated on where did you work last and Mm -hmm. what habits did they instill in you? And also PS forget everything you've learned because we're going to mold you in our form. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And some places allow for more individuality than others. Some places are, are some of the best cocktail bars out there are not super focused on what your technique looks like. Others are extremely focused on what your technique looks like. And it depends on the bar um, with the caveat as, as of as long as you can make cocktails competently. Um, But yeah, it's so I don't understand why it hasn't happened. It feels like a very huge gap in the market. It feels like if people did it well on a local level, like it would be really successful. Yeah. So it's weird that if there were a good, if there were a good bartender school, it's honestly, it's very akin to bring the conversation back full circle. It's sort of akin to what's happening on the event side of our business is that increasingly you have brands or events that want to have a higher echelon of cocktails at their events, but the catering companies that are out there are not, that's not their wheelhouse. They don't know how to execute Mm. Um, really well done cocktails at scale. And there's very few players at the table in terms of who can pull off really exceptional cocktails for 10,000 people at a music festival that is beyond mm. just whiskey cokes and vodka sodas. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, Liquid Productions is a great one. Yeah. Andy Seymour, who you mentioned, who uh, is part of the Bar Five Day, his company, their company, is pulling off extraordinary cocktails for thousands and thousands of people at events. And there are very few companies out there that are like that. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So similarly on the education side, we haven't yet seen a nationally credited bartending school that focuses on the style of drink making that we participate in. Yeah. I mean, even like bar five, like bar smarts, bar, bar starts, bar five day, all of that. It is the only program that I would really recommend for bartenders who are looking to learn about bartending, but it's not, it, it is very loosely focused on the technique of bartending and more about here is the history of, of this. Here's why we do this. Here's, here is what you're serving. Uh, and I think that that's incredibly valuable. And I feel like I learned so much studying for it and going through the program, but it's not about like, all right, well, here's how you stir. Here's how you shake it's assumed that you already know that Mm -hmm. and it's assumed that you already basically know the recipes. Yes. Well, and much like I would say cooks would probably have this position about culinary school in Mm. that nothing replaces real world boots on the ground experience. Yeah. Right. Mm. It's almost like, I feel like bartending is one of the last vestiges of like apprenticeship culture. Oh, interesting. Yes. I think that, I think that, and I think that that's kind of valuable too. You know, there are so many idiosyncrasies, um, bar to bar, and it's almost impossible for a school to be like, 
all right, well, here's how you do this. Here's the way, because there isn't one way. And so I think that the apprenticeship model is more useful. Yeah, which I mean, maybe there's a gap because there simply doesn't need to be a thing. Yeah. Correct. And well, like and just the, bartender yeah. school is like, don't do that. And that's the thing. <laughs> is, that's is the my, answer. My just blanket learn, advice. Think about it as an apprenticeship. Yeah. My blanket advice for any any aspiring bartender is don't do that. Don't go to bartending school because you can learn everything you need to know on the job. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. So there you have it. I don't exactly don't remember how school. we got here. I don't but know we should ask you about. Yeah. Your, uh, so every almost every person that we brought on the show so far has wanted to talk about the martini. Oh, sure. But that was our first episode. That, so we covered that episode. second episode. So we covered, covered it super early. Said everything that there is to say about the martini. We covered it all. It's fine. There's there nothing might, left on the cutting room floor there. There will probably be a martini part two, but um, we can't we can't just have every episode be about martinis. But what is your go-to martini oh i'm so happy that you asked this. <laughs> <laughs> we knew you we, we knew yes because you, you are right it is such a personalized drink mm -hmm. and i think especially for it's weird it's become the new i want to say seven or eight years ago the drink that was the bartender drink was the daiquiri and everyone had mm -hmm. like their rum that they preferred mm -hmm. their particular spec in terms of more lime juice or more simple syrup or i don't want simple syrup i want turbinate whatever it was yeah, right yeah. And you also, it kind of became the bartender or the drink by which bartenders tested other bartenders or sort of mm -hmm. evaluated the quality of a bar in terms of walking in, ordering a daiquiri and seeing what they gave you and then deciding if you're going to have another cocktail or if you're going to switch to beer, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like the martini has become that next thing where it's the drink that we most enjoy when we're not on shift, it's the drink we make ourselves at home the most. And it's also the drink that we are measuring other bars and bartenders against. Mm -hmm. um, but long winded way to say my favorite martini. And it, quite frankly, it is my favorite cocktail. Okay. It is my desert island or like the last drink I hope to have on this planet. Um, a tuxedo mm -hmm. number two, Ooh. which is a martini that has. Um, uh, and it's interesting because there's kind of two different recipes that I've seen for this. and they. The naming or the nomenclature kind of gets interchanged, a tuxedo number two or a turf club. And mm -hmm. I see them as two totally different drinks with different builds, but I have seen them used interchangeably. But gin is the base, dry vermouth or Dolan Blanc vermouth. I think the turf club more often calls for Dolan Blanc. I like my tuxedo with dry vermouth or some mm -hmm. split of dry vermouth and something like Koki Americano. Yeah. And then a bar spoon of maraschino liqueur, which is a dry Italian cherry liqueur. And then the cocktail is stirred. It's served up with an absinthe rinse on the glass or an absinthe aromatic. And I just adore this cocktail. It makes me feel a certain way in a bar. And especially mm -hmm. when I see a bar that, you know, when you think of the word tuxedo, it feels fancy. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of cocktail bars, like Drinkwell is a good example. We, nothing about the space feels fancy, but when you're drinking a tuxedo, you feel fancy. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I love a tuxedo number two. It is my favorite cocktail of all time. It is. Awesome. Have you ever had a tuxedo? I don't think I have, so it's, I will have to yeah, try it's, one. It's rad. Have to we, make me one later I'll make you one later. Uh, yeah, the tuxedo number two is, is an oft overlooked martini, uh, martini variation. I feel like 
if we're talking about martini variations with names, like named martini variations, I'll go ahead and throw one out. Okay. Because I really like, I hate the name, but I love the cocktail. The Poet's Dream. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a Benedictine uh, yeah. vehicle. Yeah, a Benedictine <laughs> vehicle. Um, so gin, uh, dry vermouth, and Benedictine with orange bitters. It's pretty huh. simple, but it's... Oh, it's spectacular. Well, and if you look at the ratio, the ratio of like a poet's dream, a tuxedo, a lot of these things, it's the same building blocks. Mm -hmm. It's gin, some type of vermouth, and then an accent piece, right? And in some cases, that accent piece is Benedictine or it's maraschino or it's fill in the blank. But mm -hmm. the ratios are more or less the same. And then from there, you kind of tweak and hone and, and all of that. Yeah. It's kind of the same with like the Pisco Sour that we started with, the Pisco Sour add a quarter ounce or a bar spoon of something else and it becomes its own thing. But the building mm -hmm. blocks are still there. I'm sorry, yeah. we're actually done talking about Oh, the are we? Okay. <laughs> okay. We're on to martinis. Yes. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Um, I do like a poet's dream a lot. Yeah. I mean, any any martini variation, sign me up. Yeah, but, absolutely. But I, I tend to gravitate towards those that have like some little bell or whistle on top of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I find myself... Any cocktail bar I walk into, I, I find myself looking at the menu and being like, all right, where's that martini riff? Sometimes mm -hmm. there isn't one, and that's a bummer. Yeah. every I feel like every bar should have a martini riff. I feel bad because often when I go into cocktail bars, I want to try what is on their house menu because I feel a responsibility to. Yes. Mm -hmm. In terms of keeping my level of knowledge up and also understanding what's going on in my city or the city that I'm in in terms of, all right, what mm -hmm. are guests drinking at other bars mm -hmm. and how does my menu sort of stack up to that? I think that's a responsibility of every bar to be or bartender to be out in their market and understand what their drinkers are drinking at other places. And so I feel an obligation to have whatever's on the house menu, but all too often I fall into the lazy trap of just ordering the martini that the bartender wants to give me or seeking mm -hmm. out the martini variation that's mm -hmm. on their menu. Um, and so I need to be better about branching out. But it's if you're in the right venue, it's kind of a foolproof drink. Be, yeah, yes. absolutely. I think because it is so personalized, you mm -hmm. can ask for exactly what you want and you know you're going to get yeah. it. You, mm -hmm. Yeah, you can ask for exactly what you want. And if the bartender is up to snuff, then they can make you exactly what you want and it will be perfectly done just for you. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I can talk about the martini forever and ever. Which is Amen. why we talk about it on All the every time. episode. <laughs> well, I really have to commend you because you're also helping to normalize martinis on the rocks, which I have been uh, championing that cause for years and years and years. And so it's I'm happy to see that it has entered the yes the popular ethos of things yes through so, through podcasts like yours you're uh, making a difference <laughs> hey Truly. we're just we're just happy to have a listener changing the world yeah uh, no again martini for, at a time if you're joining us for the first time on this episode hey you can take your gin and you can take your vermouth and you can pour them over a big ice cube at the same time and hey that's a that's martini a baby martini, baby <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah, no, uh, the first time I had a poet's dream was actually on the rocks. Uh, I was at Attaboy in Nashville and I had had like three martini variations and I just killed them because I was because <laughs> I, dr I drink I drink very quickly just in general. If I if I focus on other things, my hand will just go and drink whatever is in my hand. 
uh, be it like soda or a cocktail yes. or whatever. Um, so I had killed like three martinis and I was like, I'll have another like in this same vein, please. And they brought out the poet's dream. They were like, this is the poet's dream. Here's what's in it. It's great. We also put it on a rock for you to like lengthen it out a little bit. And I was like, I see you. <laughs> That's hospitality. Yeah. Yeah. The poet in me sees the poet in you. It's very, it's very namaste energy. Yes. It was, but I was like, hey, game recognized game. Yeah. That was a very tactful way of telling you that I'm drinking way too quickly. Please, and... dear God, slow down. <laughs> Don't chug this. Um, I but that's that. that's also a pretty good pro tip of like, if you put something on ice, you're most likely going to drink it for longer. Yeah. It's going to it's gonna last longer typically than, yeah. than an up drink. Which I feel like it takes me like three hours to drink a martini, which is... I'm I'm not a professional bartender, but but I I appreciate well, I well and nothing is I, I think the the biggest you know I don't know rationale for it is nothing is worse than a warm martini. This is mm-hmm. yeah, and so I would much rather have, have something that's like slightly diluting over time, but mm-hmm. is still nice and cold. Yes, absolutely. Than something yeah. that used to be balanced thirty yeah. minutes ago, but it's now fifty degrees yeah. and just because it does. Like I, I love to like sip on a martini, and it like takes me a while to drink it. So yeah. on, well, and it's fascinating because I feel like it's so much. It is standard to ask a guest, for example, with Manhattans, would you prefer this up or on the rocks? But mm-hmm. we haven't quite gotten there with martinis. That's the future. In terms of having that question right off the gate. Normally with martinis, it's, okay, first, do you prefer gin or vodka? And then you get into the next question, which is about how dry do you like it and mm-hmm. twist or olive, et cetera. But the up or on the rocks, that's really the only question with the Manhattan other than mm-hmm. what is, do you have a whiskey preference? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I feel like, do you think it's because like the martini glass is so like iconic? Yes. And it's like a martini goes in a martini glass. I mean, which is martini even conjures it up something true. visually for people yeah. that I think a Manhattan does not. And also I think the Manhattan or just whiskey in general conjures up the rocks glass. Mm-hmm. So I have a, a whole subsection of guests that they're surprised when I hand them a Manhattan in a Nicanora or in a cocktail coupe. Mm-hmm. They are expecting something in a lowball glass. <laughs> I which I guess is is that, is also like that's why it's nice to have uh like if that's on your menu to have the little picture of the glass yes because it is a little bit jarring to be like wait this isn't what I expected well, even very, though it is probably what you want very sadly I hate to say this but it is a fact is that you're you are still battling like the gendered cocktail glass conception uh, and yeah. in terms of women don't drink whiskey and things of that nature yeah. and so you have a lot of men that are used to drinking whiskey or whiskey cocktails but they want it in the quote-unquote manly glass which to them means a rocks glass or an old-fashioned glass and you have to sort of navigate that and say actually there is no such thing as gender in cocktails just like there's no such thing as gender in people and yeah yeah Yeah, it's exactly yes i i like to and that is why I don't ask up around i ask up around the rocks for any like negroni style cocktail Mm. um I do not ask up around the rocks for a Manhattan because a Manhattan is designed to be served up. And if somebody wants it on the rocks, they can ask me for it. Um, I bec- And the reason that I say that is because I really actively fight, try to fight against like th- anybody who I try not to give people the opportunity to 
ask for something in a manly glass. Right. Mm -hmm. Quote unquote manly glass. Uh, I try to not give people the opportunity to like. To even have that conversation. To have that conversation. I hand them the, like, the Manhattan. Drink it. If they don't want it in the, in the cocktail glass, if they really, if they want it in a rocks glass so bad, they'll ask me to change it. And that's that's okay. And and I will. I absolutely will. And then if they say something about a manly glass, I'll be like, hey, cocktails, not people. Uh, also, you know, gender gender is a spectrum. And also, you know, cocktails specifically do not have genders. Do not have genders. Um, you can drink out of any glass. Yeah, you can it's drink out really of any fine. glass. It doesn't change anything about you. Right. Um, besides maybe just like you're maybe a little bit more open-minded if you drink out of a out of a cocktail glass. But I, I, I try not to give people the option with, with something like a Manhattan because, because a Manhattan is, well, first of all, it's just a drink. Have you ever been like, it's called a Manhattan, drink it in that glass? <laughs> uh, Shut up. No, I've, I've, gone, I've gone a couple different ways uh, depending on the bar that I'm working at and how feisty I'm feeling about things. Uh, if somebody gives me gives me lip about the the <laughs> glass that I served it in, I I typically am just like, hey man, no, so, like typically these days I'm a little I'm a little bit more even keel now than I was when I started doing this, uh, and typically if somebody's like, oh yeah, served me this in a girly glass, I'm feeling like kind of frou frou or whatever. I'm just like, I'm like hey, no such thing, man. Right. This is or especially with somebody if somebody serve like makes a comment about a Nick and Nora glass, I'm like, that's my favorite glass. Yes. Like that's straight up my favorite glass to drink out of. It's elegant. It doesn't spill easily. It keeps your cocktail like it keeps your hand from warming up the cocktail. Yes. I love all of these things about the Nick and Nora mm -hmm. glass. Tell me why you don't like it. Yeah. I think if you're able to give that little few seconds of actually, this is the more functional glass. Yeah. <laughs> right. This is the appropriate <laughs> vessel for your cocktail. And I yeah. want to serve you the best drink. And uh, yeah, yeah, and like you're, don't be so close minded. Yeah, yeah. Your Bye. giant manly hands will just warm that drink up your, so your fast. Your big, hot, not, manly hands, they're just so big and beefy that they're just gonna toast that drink up. Your, right. your, so, your drink strong, it. warm, manly so, hands will warm up the cocktail. Sweaty, uh, yeah. we're trying to mitigate your strong, warm, manly hands. That's actually a really sound technique. I think I'm gonna try that this weekend. <laughs> and next time that this exchange comes up <laughs> yeah there you go yeah That's... we just we just you honestly we just noticed how big and manly and warm we your hands were uh, we could see the heat radiating just... off of them and how strong they were and uh that's why we gave you this glass with a stem so that your big manly warm hands would not warm up the content brilliant absolutely brilliant uh you gotta gotta know your audience right i guess yes um, well i i guess <laughs> my, my big manly hands. thank you for the compliment and uh <laughs> And I will drink it in this yes. quote unquote yes. girly glassware. Yes. Um uh, anyway, on that note, yeah, we should probably get into uh, listening questions. Get into questions. <laughs> um so, okay, so I have one here uh about tiki drinks. Who's and uh my friend Tommy. Um and he said, uh what are the best tiki drinks without nut-based liquors? I love tiki drinks, but I am allergic to almonds with a little sideways smiley, oh no, face. Oh, well, we... The we, face of chagrin. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 
I'll give two answers because they're two very different drinks, but we talked about one earlier in the show. I love a painkiller. And so I listened to your fabulous episode with Lauren Unterberg, which was a wealth of knowledge in terms of delineating tropical drinks versus tiki drinks. Mm -hmm. And this is still something that I am learning a ton about and trying to be much more culturally sensitive to. But uh, I think in terms of what the layman guest considers uh, a painkiller, I think they conceive of a painkiller as a true tiki drink, Mm -hmm. whereas Mm -hmm. I would classify it, especially after hearing Lauren, as maybe more tropical in style. Mm -hmm. But a painkiller is essentially a dark rum pina colada uh, with orange juice in the mix. Uh, I also love it because there's not a lot of cocktails in which orange juice plays fairly. And and most cocktail bars have a surplus of orange juice because we're peeling oranges all the time. But what do we do with all the juice that's Mm -hmm. left from the peeled fruit? So if you can find a way to work a painkiller into your program, it at least helps cut down on some waste. And it's really delicious. It's one of those foolproof drinks where I very rarely have a guest, regardless of whatever their drinking proclivities are, that doesn't love the taste of a painkiller. It's just a straight up and down good drink. It's so good. And then I also I'm a big fan of the Jet Pilot, uh, which is has cinnamon and grapefruit and really delightful dark rum cocktails. Very refreshing. But mm-hmm. again, it has that nice baking spice note to it and mm-hmm. uh, no nut liqueurs required. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So rum. Rum is the answer. Yes. Uh, and then uh, rum, I'm a big when, dummy. When we talk about tiki, rum is almost rum. always rum, the answer. Yes. It's not always. Uh, yeah. I actually, I really revel in those non-rum based tropical drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, I And I love creating non-rum based tro- tropical uh, drinks. I love seeing scotch in yeah. in like tiki style or tropical style drinks. Yes. Uh, I often like it in tandem with rum. I think that rum, like a funky rum and a and a peaty scotch, honestly, work really nicely together, both in like their similarities and their contrasts. Uh, but also, I think you can make a tropical drink uh, in the style of tiki with other spirits, and it's very fun to to like challenge yourself in that way because rum is the just like the go to. Okay, so I have another question is which ones do you like which things have almond in it? Because I don't know. And also like if you're allergic to almonds, what drink should you not order? And is there anything that you can swap it out with? If you see something on the menu or like that has almonds in it, can I put something else in? That's Ooh. a question for me. Well, certainly know. if you see orgeat on the menu, okay. beware. So orgeat yeah. is an almond-based syrup, and okay. uh, chances are that's a no-go, which sort of makes the Mai Tai a no-go because mm-hmm. orgeat is really... kind of a cornerstone of, of a Mai Tai. Um, but there are a lot of options out there for you. Yeah. I actually think there's not... Other than the Mai Tai, I mean, there are a lot of tropical drinks that call for orgeat, but not as many mm-hmm. as you would think. I don't consider nut-based cordials to be like the centerpiece of a lot gotcha. of tea Agreed. drinks. Yeah. I would say, I mean, there's so, or is that off the top of my head, line? Mai Tai, Army Navy. Yeah. Uh, I'm honestly blanking on a lot of cocktails. I know that Orjat plays a, a role in a lot of, in a lot of tiki cocktails uh, mm-hmm. or tropical style cocktails, but um, I'm, it, I'm honestly yeah. in the moment blanking, but you can also, if you just tell your bartender that you have a nut allergy and, and you really want to have a Mai Tai, like you can just ask them to sub it out for a different kind of syrup. Like I would maybe use Demerara syrup 
as opposed to orgeat in a Mai Tai if somebody had a nut allergy. And it would still be a perfectly delicious drink. Well, and bars that are somewhat dialed into a sustainability conversation, almonds and almond byproducts are not the most like ecologically friendly Mm. thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. almonds, to grow almonds takes up a ton of water. And so that's why you see a lot of people gravitating towards other non-dairy-based milks, like just in their milk Mm -hmm. consumption, oat milks and soy milks and what have you. And so we don't often talk a lot about the fact that like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't lean too heavy on orgeat and making it from scratch and all the things Mm. because almonds aren't really great for the earth right Mm -hmm. um and it's cool when you see bars that dive into things like like sunflowers i actually think sun sun butter is delicious it's my preferred like nut butter or seed butter Mm -hmm. at home and making syrups from sunflower seeds is delicious it's so yummy so um i don't to be honest i don't know if people that would have a nut allergy would also potentially have a seed allergy that is, is that, a great question. Is that a thing? I don't know. I don't know. I know a lot of people who are allergic to tree nuts are also allergic to peanuts, which are not nuts. They are legumes. No. But, um, but I don't know about almonds. I don't know about... Consult your local nutritionist. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know about <laughs> Medical seeds. Doctor. Like, yeah. If you're allergic to almonds... You could not be allergic to peanuts, so you're probably not allergic yeah, to Yeah, this sounds like a pretty seeds. specific allergy. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> right. Um, but so if, you're, your if you're not allergic to sugar... Then you can you can have even if it's not a like nut or seed based syrup, you could still enjoy the cocktail with another like with either simple syrup or a demerara simple syrup or something of that nature. Agreed. Okay, so rum and different syrups. Yeah, I love that. Rum, lime, and sugar in some rum, lime, sugar, rum, lime, combination. sugar. And if you're allergic to well, one of those things, I just taught it. We so do. Sorry. We do monthly, if not twice a month classes at Drinkwell for consumers on different types of spirits. And we just did our rum class this last week. And I okay. always tell people what one, what, what one rum can't do, three rums can. And so mm-hmm. as long as you are blending some combination of rums and there's a citrus component and some sweet component, you're, it's probably going to yield a pretty damn tasty drink. Mm-hmm. And then you tweak it from there. Yeah. I love that. I'm a big fan of the like agricole jamaican and more neutral like either either puerto rican or like barbados rum blend yes so like yes a, a, fr- a fresh funky uh an overripe funky and then something to kind of tie it all together yes well and i just tried a black strap rum neat for the first time in a long time oh yeah and which one uh the crujan oh and so good so and one of our guests was like, oh, it's like the Amaro of rum. And I had never considered mm. that until I tasted it. And I said, oh, wow, this has a lot of bitterness and a lot of saltiness. And it has a very distinct maple syrup flavor. And so I thought, oh, th- you're, they're right. This is almost like Averna in rum form. Yeah. And no wonder it is a really nice accent piece for a lot of tiki or tropical drinks. Yeah. the Like bringing it back around to the Jungle Bird, our first episode, Campari and Blackstrap Rum like cover a lot of the same ground in terms of bitterness. Yes. And they work really well together. Uh, I think that that's what makes the cocktail so special is the is the juxtaposition and the combination of the Campari and the Blackstrap Rum. Very cool. So there's Super that. Super yummy. They can both stand up to themselves in a fight against each other, which, <laughs> which is, is tough. Yeah. Which is tough to do with Campari. Campari is is such a. It's a bully. It's a bully. 
there there are some cocktail bullies. Those bullies are Campari, uh, Maraschino liqueur, green chartreuse, absinthe. And so you you know you have to figure out how to either work around them or use them sparingly, and it's it's always interesting to see how sometimes you can just like bring another bully to the playing field and they complement each other. Yes, <laughs> the bully each well, other and out. Campari is unique in that it's a bully, and the solution is often to add more Campari <laughs> and then add a stronger ingredient. Like where there's maraschino, like you very rarely see a cocktail recipe that calls for an ounce of maraschino liqueur. Yeah. Whereas with Campari, it's like ounce and a half in a jungle bird. Bring it on. Do yeah, it. do it up. <laughs> the the um a good example of a cocktail that brings multiple bullies to the to the field, and I'm sure that we will talk about this cocktail eventually, is the last word. Mm. Uh, you know, it's equal parts green chartreuse and maraschino with gin and lime juice. It's it shouldn't work. It shouldn't work on paper, but it it, it does, and it is delightful. Uh, I don't know how, but. <laughs> I do know that it is. I am awaiting the last word revival. I feel like we're in a last word low point mm-hmm. or valley where it has fallen a little bit out of favor. And I do think part of that is over the last like maybe seven or so years, a lot of bar owners and bar managers have trained their bartenders not to sell the last word because chartreuse is so expensive and increasingly mm-hmm. harder to find. And also when something becomes so popular, it falls out of favor because it's not cool anymore. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like St. Germain where it's like, it's a delicious drink and it makes everything taste yummy, but oh, we don't want that, right? Yeah. Somehow mm-hmm. that's bad. Uh, yeah. And the last word is kind of that thing. And then it went through a phase where people were ordering mezcal last words and then yeah. that mm-hmm. felt cool. Like that's the cool way to have a last word. And that was about mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Yeah. And so now I feel like we don't get a lot of calls for last words anymore and we don't proactively sell them. But I anticipate a revival as you have a new audience of drinkers that are coming into cocktail bars and trying drinks for the first time. I don't see how you avoid having it be a part of the conversation for people because it is a delicious cocktail that is pretty foolproof. And when mm-hmm. you start subbing in different bases, I, I don't know, it's just a very user-friendly drink. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we should probably we, get one more question. Yeah, I was going to say, do we have time for one we, more question? And do we you think don't, you have it? Okay. but our, our good friend Brandon asks, uh, if I've been sitting in a bar for a while, not being greeted or talked to or acknowledged, but people after me are getting orders taken, et cetera, What's a good next step so I don't seem like an ass? Why would you seem like an ass? Exactly. That was my question. <laughs> Interesting. You're not the ass in this situation. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, uh, gosh. I'm, like, I'm, putting, I'm like, I feel awkward for this person sitting yeah. in that chair not getting acknowledged. That's so terrible. Yeah. That's so terrible. Um, Man. And I, I guess I've been in this situation as a guest and because mm. and if you work in bars, you give a lot of grace mm-hmm. to whoever's working because you understand, mm-hmm. OK, there must be a reason I'm not being acknowledged. Right. Yeah. And especially if that bar or bartender knows that you work in a bar very often we get ignored for a long period of time because they understand, <laughs> hey, I they, see you. Yeah. Right. You know what I'm dealing with right now. Yeah, But for the everyday bar consumer, that can be incredibly frustrating and demoralizing and feel very unwelcoming. And, uh, you know, I don't know, like I would say the move is never like snapping of the fingers or Mm. a yelling or whatever that whatever like obnoxious behavior to get attention. I think 
my real answer is decide, okay, do you still want to be there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like first, here's the thing. You may really want to be there for other reasons, in which case I think trying to pull a server aside in a mm-hmm. discreet way. I always try to find the host or the server and I, I approach it from a, hey, am I doing this wrong? No one's greeted me and I really would like to place an, a drink order and I feel like I'm doing something wrong as the guest. And if they're a dialed in bar staff from a hospitality perspective, it will wake them into consciousness like, oh. and say, yeah. oh my gosh, we are really dropping the ball here. Now we need to go above and beyond to make sure this person feels Absolutely. welcomed and feels really taken care of. And mm-hmm. at that point, you could be looking at like a seat change and some special attention and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. At least that's how I'd like to think about it if something like that happened in my bar where we were so busy that we inadvertently ignored a guest unintentionally. If someone made us aware of it, oh my God, we'd go above and beyond to correct yeah. it. But often you're in that situation, you're like, you know what? I don't even really want to be in this bar in the first place. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go next door. Yeah. There, that's, yeah, that's, that's my biggest piece of advice is if you don't have to be there, like if you're not there with a big group of people, you're not like meeting somebody there, then like, you don't got to be there. You right. Can, if, yeah. if they, if they don't, if they if don't not, value you enough to, yeah. to acknowledge you, there is a bar across the street or down the street that will, be, that will, that will, will be, be happy more to than take happy your order, to take your like order if, yeah. and provide you with, with, with adequate service. Uh, yeah, I think I understand the anxiety of being like, well, how do I do this without looking like a jerk? Yeah. It's like, well, you're not the one being a jerk here. You're the one who is be somebody's being a jerk to you. Yes. And whether it's intentional or not, somebody is being a jerk to you and you need to stand up for yourself. Um, it is like if some if I give somebody a bad cocktail or, you know, a cocktail that they don't like. I don't make bad cocktails. <laughs> uh, if, I make, if I give somebody back a cocktail that they do not enjoy, I want to know so that I can fix it, so that I can get them something different. You know, maybe they took a leap. Maybe I suggested something that I thought they would like and they didn't, and they don't want to hurt my feelings or whatever. Hurt my feelings. I don't care. You won't hurt my feelings. Just tell it's me. It's not my recipe. <laughs> it's not my recipe. Or maybe yeah. it is. Yeah. And you know what? Not not every recipe is for every single person. I I will never be offended if somebody tells me that they don't like my cocktail. It's not a failure. It's feedback. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So in the same way, like if somebody feels like they're not getting good service, I want to make, tell me, you know, if if you feel like I am not providing you with adequate, adequate service, let me know because I will, or let somebody know so that they can tell me, you know, do whatever you feel Mm -hmm. comfortable with because I want to, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to make sure that you have a good time. Uh, I'm also here to make sure that everyone else has a good time. And so sometimes, sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we mm-hmm. we we miss people. Sometimes we think other people have it covered that don't. And yeah, which like it could be just like an, an honest mistake or just like them being really busy and and mm-hmm. like messed up by taking someone who came in after and they might feel bad and. It's not that they like hate you and like that you're doing something wrong. Well, and I think that's something I wish that guests knew a little bit more. And we 
it's not their fault that they don't know it because we go to great lengths to hide it in terms of what else is going on in the bar. How often do you see a review or hear an experience from a guest where they say, well, they weren't even that busy and yet still I had this Mm -hmm. not great experience. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, busy can mean so many different things. Yes, there might not be that many guests in the bar that they're taking care of, but oh my God, their ice machine blew up in the back and there's water leaking all over the floor and they just broke two bottles behind the bar and there's simple syrup that they're trying to discreetly clean up and p.s two people called out sick that day right Mm -hmm. so there are so many ways in which a bar can be busy that is not obvious to the guests that's sitting there because all they see is oh i'm one of only six patrons on the bar or 10 patrons on the bar Mm -hmm. and uh so therefore they feel like the bar is not very busy and therefore they should be getting a certain caliber of service yeah. but you have no idea what is happening behind the scenes yeah, so yeah. It might that not they are trying to yeah. like the chaos that's trying to be controlled and I, that's not the guest's fault by any means and it partially it's on us because we do go to such great lengths to conceal that aspect of mm-hmm. it we want it to seem seamless and flowy and just the duck swimming above the surface mm-hmm. yeah. um, and sometimes I feel like we could do a better job of being a little bit more vulnerable to our guests in terms of what it takes to keep a bar running, mm-hmm. running and humming mm-hmm. and I don't think that's a bad thing I think we have uh, become a little bit too invested into this idea of well the guest is just there to escape and we are there to serve them and that's true but we're also not their servants and mm-hmm. they yeah. there is an aspect of the work that we do that is um, not always visible to them. For sure. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that there's like, I've definitely been passed over at a bar before in a very frustrating way where like somebody, like they'll take a, they'll take the order from a, from a person behind me or right next Mm -hmm. to me. And it's like, you've walked past me like three times, dude, like, like take my order. Uh, and you know, I think we've talked about mastering the. I think we've the, talked the lean, the lean, kind of like oh, leaning, yes. in. leaning in, making sure your making posture, eye contact, your posture you're ready, shows you're that ready. you're ready. <laughs> yes, but if that's not working, if if the lean isn't working, if some if you're being passed over and it feels either intentional or just like they do not have eyes for you, then you either say something to to somebody who you can pull aside. Or you leave because if you're getting bad service, you can you can get better service. A hundred percent. Yeah. And you but you can also look at it through a gracious lens and say, okay, this bar doesn't have the capacity to serve me right now. So yeah. I'm gonna go somewhere else. Absolutely. Yeah, there Absolutely. you go. There you go. Yeah. And give them a rest. I will say to your to your point about like the bar wasn't even that busy. This is a this is a little known, I think, outside of the service industry fact. Uh, that that most people won't tell you. So listen, listen close, listen close. The less busy we are, the less attentive we are because we think we have less to do. That's true. Mm, that's if I've absolutely only, true. If I've only got one guest, like I'm not going to just stand in front of them. That would be I'm real gonna, weird I'm for gonna everybody. Just like, <laughs> I, I might like walk away for a second, have a conversation with the other bartender or my bar back or whatever. And like it happens everywhere I've ever worked, every place I've ever been, the less busy a place is, the less attentive your servers or or bartenders are because they don't they don't they're wanna, not on. Yeah, well, they're, they're, not they're on not, in the same yeah, way. They're not on in the same way. And also it's weird to linger right in front of you and be like, I'm here for whatever you need. Well, and the reality too, and this is especially true in this 
whatever this new normal is coming mm-hmm. out of the pandemic, where bars and restaurants are maybe not as staffed as they want yeah. to be, mm-hmm. those quote unquote slow times are also the opportunity for that team to tackle kind of these ancillary projects that have nothing to do with the guests, right? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. in, or in that slow lull of the night, that's my chance to refill my bottles or get dial in with my bar back and get restocked on things. And so there's other things that are going on. And from a guest perspective, all they feel is I'm not getting personalized attention right now, Mm -hmm. which is very valid. And the the truly great bars are the ones that are able to balance those things in concert so that the guest Mm -hmm. still feels cared for. Um, And I think also the reality is that sometimes for the right guest, adequate service is great service, right? Mm -hmm. You don't need to be doting on someone in order for them to feel really cared for, but minimally check in on me. Is my water glass full? Has my bed nap been replaced? Make me aware that you're aware I'm a human being sitting at your bar. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. that is sufficient. And that's fine for 95% of the people. I'll say, I, I think that that's, that is honestly fine for me. Like, yes, most places that I go, I don't want somebody to be checking in every five minutes. I want, you know, if you see my water glasses and is empty, refill it, all that sort of stuff. But like, I don't, I need you. I need to know you're there. Like if I need you, I need to be able to like have access to you, but I don't, I don't want like constant check-ins. I don't want, I typically don't, especially if I'm sitting at a table, I feel like I don't, mm-hmm. like if I've made the decision to sit at a table, then I typically want to have a conversation with the person that I'm sitting with. If I'm sitting at the bar, I actually like, I enjoy chatting with bartenders. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I think that's a, a pretty universal industry thing that we enjoy chatting with other industry people. But if I'm sitting at a table, I'm just like, all right, yeah, no, we're, we're good to chill out, you know? Well, and another secret of bar life that I think most people would be surprised to hear is most bartenders are introverts, not extroverts. So mm-hmm. having a conversation with a stranger is just as awkward for us as it is for you, <laughs> right? It really, truly is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so... I want to make sure that you feel welcomed and that you feel cared for, but I also don't want to make you feel uncomfortable by my presence. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and certainly as a guest, if I'm drinking alone in a bar, I want to be ignored. Yeah. My I, dream bar, fair. my dream bar environment are ones that I can come in with a book Read and drink book. my martini in peace. Mm-hmm. And the bartender will refill my water glass and say hello and give me my check in a prompt manner. And other than that, <laughs> like we're good. Yeah. yeah we're good. Absolutely. We've gone so far over time here. It's been Uh, so fun though. But it's been such a great conversation and I'm so glad that we, that we found the time to do this. Uh, But we should probably end the episode. Jessica, do you have anything that you would like to plug? Anything you want to talk about? Oh, just uh, if you are in Austin or visiting Austin, please come see us at Drinkwell. You can follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at Drinkwell Austin. We are a delightful little cocktail bar. We just celebrated our 10-year anniversary. Yeah, congratulations. Yes. And congratulations for the Tales nomination. Yes, our very first Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards nomination. 10 years. Uh, Yeah, it's it's a little bit odd because usually those things are reserved for I feel like that's something you get super hyped about when you're a very new bar Mm. or you're in the kind of bar that gets a lot of national press. And so it was really special for us because I think a lot of people woke up that morning and looked at their list and said, what is Drinkwell? (laughs) So it was very flattering and and kind. And we're we're, as the team is just very elated. So it's nice. A 10 year overnight success story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's how all overnight success stories happen, I feel. Yeah. 
Yeah. Cool. Uh, again, definitely go to Drinkwell. Can't recommend it highly enough. It's it's just a delight to go in there every single time. Uh, and we've had now two Drinkwell folks on the on the yes. podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elise, tell me what tell me what you got. Yeah. So if you're if you want to listen to more podcasts and you're just like, oh no, I have no other podcast to queue up. I have another podcast about the climate crisis called "Worlds of Burning." So, uh, go listen to that. And yeah, if you want vintage clothes, you can buy them at my shop, Heist Vintage. <laughs> you can buy them. Uh, Heist Vintage. Yeah. H e i s s. Yes, those are my other. T a g e. Hopefully, you know how to spell vintage. Instagram i n s t i n s t. Anyway, anyway, those are the things. Uh, awesome. And you can follow us at Bottle Episode Pod on Instagram. And, TikTok. And is it Bottle Episode Pod on TikTok it as well? It is Bottle Episode Pod bottle on TikTok. Bottle Episode Pod everywhere. Definitely DM us your questions about cocktails, drinking, uh, anytime you've ever felt awkward at a bar, not just in general. Um, and Bottle Episode Pod at Gmail. Yeah. Yeah, is another you can place also you can email submit us. questions. If you've got like a longer form thing that you wanna you wanna send us, please send it over email. Uh, but yeah, we want to hear your stories. We want to hear your questions. Uh, and again, we're we have run the well has run dry on questions that we banked before we started recording yeah. this. Stuff. I think we have enough questions for another episode. One more episode. We want to hear like what's like also like what's what what have you always been afraid to ask? Yeah, you know, we're here for you. We're here for it. Uh, we're here for it here at Bottle Episode, the podcast that you are listening to right now. <laughs> the podcast Hopefully. that is over right about now. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>